The scripture reading this morning is Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 17. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended, descending from heaven came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. For fear of him, the guard shook and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has been raised, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples. He has been raised from the dead, and indeed he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. This is my message to you. So they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came to him, took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While they were going, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests everything that had happened. After the priests had assembled with the elders, they devised a plan to give a large sum of money to the soldiers, telling them, You must say, His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story is still told among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted the word of the Lord. This morning I want to speak to uh, those of you who consider yourselves in some way on the fringes of faith. That includes those of you who come to church religiously but have some doubts, and it includes those of you who don't come to church very often but still have some faith. By that account, I think that might include everybody in this room. Because there is a believer and an unbeliever in every single one of us, especially at Easter. For those of us who believe in the Easter story, we do so because um, for many, it's been passed down to us as a living tradition, whether from our families or society in general. Even if we don't understand it all, we know that there are honest scholars and historians that attest to its reliability. But still, it's sometimes hard to believe in this Easter message, this story that we just heard a moment ago. But what if you saw the resurrection of Jesus? Like what if you were there, uh, to use a COVID phrase, in person? And you, were, and you didn't have to rely on church tradition or these ancient documents for the historicity of this day, but what if you were an eyewitness to the occasion? Would it then be easier to believe? Not according to our text today. Matthew uh, tells us that the guards, they were there, they saw the whole thing. 
Suddenly there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descending from heaven came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. I love that image, by the way. The angel just taking a moment sitting on the stone. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as, stone, uh, as snow. For fear of him, the guards shook and became like dead men. So not only did they see the resurrection, it terrified them. You'd think that uh, encountering such an event, that after seeing something so overwhelming, that they would actually fall to their knees and say, oh my God, we were wrong. I'm so sorry. We, we crucified your son the other day. Now we believe. Please forgive us. But that's not what they do. Instead, we're told that the guards left the empty tomb and they went and told the chief priests what had happened. And the chief priests offered them a large sum of money. Some things never change. If only they would say that Jesus' disciples stole the dead body. And so that's what the guards did. They took the money and they told the lie. Isn't that amazing? These men are eyewitnesses to the resurrection but still choose to put their faith in money. So apparently, seeing is not believing. They can see, yet they don't believe. Truth be told, we don't actually believe what we see. We see what we've already chosen to believe. We don't believe what we see. We see what we believe. Everybody believes in some myth, some kind of formula for how to find happiness and uh, wholeness and satisfaction in life. Um, like the guards, some people, their formula is, if only I could get a large sum of money, then I will be okay. Or maybe the currency that you value is friendship or work. If only I had a real friend or if only I had a real job. Or in religious circles, if only I tried harder and harder and harder to please God, then maybe he will accept me. Any sentence, by the way, that begins with if only is always an invitation to another narrative. I'm amazed at the sturdiness of these formulas. In spite of them constantly failing to make us happy, people, we still put our faith in them. If only I could get a lot of money quickly becomes if only I could have just a little bit more money. Even if you have a lot of friends, it's tempting to say, if only I had a friend who really understood me. And even if you have a good job, how long is it before you start wondering about what your next job might be? It doesn't matter that we see people unhappy with these things that we long to have, and it doesn't matter that they have continued to fail us over and over again. We still cling to our favorite mythology, our favorite formula, thinking that if only we are faithful to it, we will be saved. The resurrection was terrifying to the guards, not because of the earthquake and not because of the lightning, the resurrection was terrifying to the guards because it threatened their way of life. It threatened their formula for how to find salvation. As soon as they got past Easter, they returned to the money plan. And so in spite of all of our talk about rationalism and even scientific commitments, when it comes to things that really matter, things of the heart, things about faith and about putting our life back together, the evidence is sort of beside the point. 
We only see what we've chosen to believe. That's true even if what we realize we believe is a myth. After so many years, we get to a place where we can't abandon what we have known so well, our formulas, even if we know it won't save us. It's all we know, it's all we can see, and that's because as human beings, we prefer the misery we know to the mystery we do not. And that was exactly the story of the Hebrews as they wandered through the wilderness. But what if you have chosen not to believe in a formula um, or in a myth, but what if you've chosen to believe in a person, the person of Jesus Christ? What if like these disciples, you've tried to follow him, you've struggled to understand his teaching? What if you even believe as Peter did that Jesus is the son of the living God? Would the resurrection then be easy for you to accept? Not according to Matthew. He tells us that even the 11 disciples encountered the risen Jesus back in Galilee, and even though they were looking right at him, some of them still had doubts. That's amazing. For three years, they saw him miraculously heal the sick, cast out demons, and even raise Lazarus from the dead. Now, three days ago, they saw him die on a cross, and now they're standing right in front of him, risen from the dead, and some are saying, eh, I don't know about that. Our text, which is translated, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Some of them doubted, could also be translated, they had some doubts. The Greek is really tricky and the translator needs to make a decision. So maybe Matthew's point is that there were a few of those 11 who had doubts, or maybe Matthew's point is that they all had some doubts, had a few doubts. It's pretty amazing either way, don't you think? Because, well, they knew him so well, right? But it really shouldn't amaze me because I'm a disciple of Jesus myself, and I too have some doubts. And maybe some of you here this morning have some doubts as well. Now, I think those of us who profess faith in Christ, we would say that Christ has been there for us through the years. Christ has been faithful to us. He has given us more blessings than we could possibly imagine, certainly more than we deserve. Uh, he has saved our lives day after day, year after year. And yet, faced with the anxiety de jour, we have this tendency to wonder if Jesus is able to do anything about this, whatever this is, which is really another way of wondering whether Jesus is alive. And now we're getting to the doubts that uh, those of us who hang around churches tend to have. We know the creeds, we know the worship songs, we know the biblical stories. We know that it was truly the Son of God who died on Good Friday. We keep worshiping, but we still have a hard time believing in what we know with our heads, especially when it comes to the significance of Easter. Nicholas Wolterstorff is a retired Professor Emeritus of Yale Divinity School, where he taught faith to people for many years. He's 90 years old now. And uh, after many years of teaching at Yale, his son was killed 
in a mountain climbing accident in Europe. And he wrote a book in response to this to work through his own trouble, and it's called Lament for a Son. It's probably the most moving book um, I've ever read on this subject. He writes this, my life has been divided into before and after. Never again will anyone inhabit the world the way he did. Only a hole remains, a void, a gap. My son is gone. The ache of the loss sinks down and down, deep beyond all telling. How deep do souls go? When Wolterstorff comes to the New Testament text about the resurrection and talking about the resurrection of, of God's son, he, he struggles to believe in it. He has his doubts. Not that it happened, but that it makes any difference. But in spite of his doubts, in the midst of his doubts, he decides to continue to worship because, as he says, he refuses to fall down into that deep hole in his soul and give death the final word. He refuses to let the death of his son have the final word. And by doing that, he chooses to worship despite his doubts. This is actually a long tradition that goes all the way back to the first disciples in Galilee. They had some doubts, the text says, but they still worshiped him. And it is in that choice to worship, it is in that choice to refuse to allow death to have the final word that humanity reaches its most heroic moment. It's how we stay out of the dark hole. It's how, it's how in the end, faith, well, in the end, faith is not an intellectual experience, an exercise. Um, it's not an intellectual struggle against failed mythologies nor is it an emotional struggle um, against grief and heartache. In the end, faith is an act of the will. It is a choice to worship Jesus as the resurrection and the life. And what's most amazing about this text is not that the disciples doubted, because I can relate to that. That's easily understandable. No, what's most amazing to me about this text is that Jesus isn't bothered by their doubts. That's because they still worshiped him despite him, despite the doubts. Lord knows literally that if we stay in worship long enough, where we focus on the risen Jesus, eventually we come to doubt our own doubts and faith can emerge. As a pastor, I've learned that it's pointless to tell people to have faith. I can't give faith to anybody. And no one comes to believe just because preachers just keep calling for it. It's not unlike what I learned about uh, friendships from our own children. When we moved to Utah, we wanted our kids to be able to have friends, but we couldn't just give them friendships by talking about relationships. We want them to have good friends, so what did we do? We knew we could create um, a, a meeting times, arrange meetings for our kids to meet other kids where friendships may or may not occur. Uh, that's, at that point, it's out of our hands. And that's what we do every time we come to worship, every time we call ourselves to worship. It is your meeting time with God. What happens in the course of the hour is between the two of you, whether or not faith in, in the new life develops. 
But I'm pretty confident that it will not emerge unless you keep returning to the sacred meeting place. Matthew tells us that as the disciples chose to worship, Jesus came to them. And there it is, the fundamental pattern of worship. We bring our doubts, we bring our anxieties, we bring our fears, we bring our grief, our failed mythologies, our guilt to worship. We lay them down and Jesus comes to meet us. He then becomes the sole object of our faith. Our faith is not in doctrine, it's not in church, it's not in pastor or in a particular position in the prevailing social and political debates. We believe in Jesus risen from the dead. And this changes everything. It changes everything for us. Our whole understanding of life's adventure is now dependent on choosing to keep meeting the risen Christ in worship even if we struggle to believe. You have to change every other belief if you choose to accept this one. You can give up the guilt and the shame of things you have left undone or things you had done because they no longer have the defining last word on your life. You can give up the bitterness caused by others. You can give up waking up every morning with anxiety that the wheels of your life are going to fall off and it's up to you to save yourself because now there's a risen Savior in our midst and He is nowhere near being done with our lives. So I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't be afraid because Jesus will help our formulas come true. He won't. And I'm not suggesting that you shouldn't doubt because this resurrection business can be totally explained. It can't. No, what I'm doing is I'm giving you news that is worthy of doubt. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, and in his life, you find yours. Easter isn't about springtime. It's not about crocuses or chocolate bunnies or even the perseverance of the human spirit. These things might lift our spirits for a moment, but they can't change our lives. No, it wasn't the metaphor of springtime that caused this frightened little group of disciples to be transformed into courageous apostles who ultimately won the Roman Empire. No, it was this single proclamation that Christ is risen from the dead. That was the great belief that, like an earthquake, shook the foundation of every other way of life, every other failed mythology, every other formula. And as the apostles proclaimed this message to one person at a time, people discovered that they could have the new life they were desperately craving. And so can you. If a tomb can't hold Jesus, neither can it hold you. There is more to life waiting for you, more than you know. But you have to believe to see. That's why your life depends on worship. But bring your doubts with you. That's always been perfectly okay with Jesus. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the victory of the cross. And we thank you that the risen Christ is with us. God, give us the gift of faith to believe where we cannot see, that we might trust in your risen life and in so doing, find our lives more and more whole each day. In Christ's name, 
Amen.